Welcome to Stand at the Table. We are friends in community, part of a church called Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Despite our many differences, we aim to stay at the table, which means we don't walk away from each other when we disagree. We believe the best relationships come when we are willing to listen to each other, showing love even when we continue to see the world differently. In today's episode, we talk about some things that are in the headlines as we're recording. Um, uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband getting hit with a hammer, Elon Musk's um, removing all boundaries from Twitter and what's happening there. And we talk about the binary nature of all of this and what's the church called to do in this season. Thanks for tuning in. So welcome back again to uh, our podcast, Staying at the Table. Once again, we have the Reverend James Beatty. Hello. And we have Brian Chilcote. Hello. And you have me, Tracy Saletta. We're all sitting around the table. And this might be a little bit more of a, of a hot topic today. Because in talking about for the last two uh, podcasts, we've been talking about deconstruction. And we've been talking about you know, kind of beside that, uh, you heard us mention being centered set as opposed to being bounded set. And what has been created in the church is this bounded set mentality of some are in and some are out, or there is a right way to do things and a wrong way to do things. And that's kind of what we've been alluding to in our conversation around deconstruction. So what this conversation is about today and what is happening in the news right now, and you're going to be hearing this about six weeks later, is um, Representative Pelosi's husband was just hit with a hammer and um, attacked while the man was looking for his wife. And alongside of that, Twitter has released Elon Musk just bought it and now has released all bounds of conversation. And so the N-word is flying on Twitter. And our, we're postulating in this podcast that that binary thinking of right-wrong, that binary thinking has moved into politics and has also moved out into the vitriol of hatred that people feel that it's their right, that they are so correct in the way that they think or or believe that they can now begin on Twitter to throw out the N-word. So we're going to open this up and we started the conversation and I'm going to hand it over to James mm-hmm. to continue the conversation surrounding this. Yeah. And so the the challenge with this is is we had great off camera, off taping conversation going. So I'm trying to back up so to make sure that we bring you into the conversation so then we can go forward. And it, we're making the connection between how we think within religion of in-group, out-group, binary thinking, and how that creates the environment on if you're good, you're good. And if you're bad, you're bad. Regardless of the activities and the actions that you take, and what it starts to precipitate in our society, right? It's already done some things in our church and that starts to impact the society around us, right? So uh, one of the parts of our conversation uh, focused on Nancy Pelosi's husband and 
the crime committed against him and then other political uh, quote unquote leaders making light of it, uh, even though because the person that was attacked is on the other team. Binary thinking. He's bad. So whatever happens to him, it's okay because he's on the bad team. Right. So someone broke into his home. That's law broken. Number one, someone uh, binds him up. Law breaking number two, and then strikes him with a blunt and, and blunt force. Law number three, and so we're not talking about that—that that this person was brutally uh, violated. We're talking about oh, he's on the other team, so yada yada yada. I thought we were against crime, right? Is it only crime against people we like that we were against, or what's going on? Binary thinking. Um. Then we brought in the piece about Twitter and the use of, uh, of violent and derogatory language and as if those don't have consequences. And I was uh, recounting back to when we first started taking in a broad way the use of the N-word out of public discourse. And it was because fights in the street. Someone would slip up who had been using it behind scene, behind the scenes, would say it in the presence of an African-American and get knocked out on the spot. On the spot. No questions asked. Why? Because in one context, this is language that is totally inappropriate. Apparently, in that person's context, it's usable. The two contexts come together is an immediate spark. There's an immediate reaction and we decided as a society, in order to take down the violence of people arbitrarily, quote unquote, being knocked out in the street, can we just remove this work? Because in some contexts, you're not going to get a warning of, hey, what did you mean by that word? No, you're just going to be find your jaw broken. You're going to find yourself in a tussle that you are like, what, where did that come from? Right. So these are the things that are starting to occur in our society when we don't think broadly and we think binary and as if our context is the only context. Mm. And as a global society, if we have to mature, we can't just think what's important to me is the only importance. What's important and right for me is the only thing that should occur. So as I look at what happened to, I think his name is Paul Pelosi, and people are not saying, this is just abstractly, this is completely wrong, and calling for everyone immediately to roll back their conversation and their rhetoric on these topics and about they're bad and we're good and we're going to show up with guns and, and intimidate them, you got to remember there are a few bubbas out here. They're going to take that to its natural conclusion. And the blood is on your hands. And what are you going to do about it? Not we, because there's a side of we who is trying to tell you now, this is what's going to happen. When it does happen, happen it's on you to clean up. Whoever's supporting this. Whoever's supporting it, it's on you. That's where we were getting in the conversation. So hopefully that gives some context for what we say next about our binary thinking and how this is leaked into our culture. Yeah, I think it's something like, uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, you think about a, a human body that has an immune system. 
that when, as you mature from uh, infancy up through adulthood, your immune system develops and grows and gets more, uh, it gets better at fighting off diseases. Somehow, as a nation, our immune system has has declined, mm-hmm. so that the uh, illness of binary thinking has been able to take over. We've got a major infection mm-hmm. going on in our national body, um, and. That's what's difficult, I think, about the topic that makes you feel a little hopeless is how do you find an answer to that? How do you correct that thinking and that really the disease that's taking over that's causing so many infections and inflammation? I don't know. Inflammation is a good word for uh, for what's happening. Um, I think that's where the importance of the open table where there's there's have to be voices saying like James you were just saying let's roll it back let's invite each other to a table and talk as mature adults with um you know the the right perspective an open perspective and not immediately jump to tribalism where we're othering people in a negative way and cutting them off and making them the monster uh we're really not we're not monsters to each other if we were able to talk and understand um, things would change, I think. So so what do we do as a church in terms of creating a space for that? I think that's a, a not just legitimate, but essential for our community. Yeah, I think, I think it's very frightening right now. And I think what is most frightening to me is it is being politicized so that when something like this does happen to... Pelosi's husband, that everybody on both sides of the aisle should be coming forward, including every news station and saying, this is abhorrent Mm -hmm. and it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's not what's happening. And I think of other situations where people's homes are being broken into, whether it's a judge that we agree with or don't agree with, but that we're allowing these attacks on whoever it might be, from a judge to a representative to, you know, senator, whatever it is, that it's becoming the norm right. and it's becoming acceptable mm-hmm. instead of people saying this is unacceptable. And and I'm also looking at Twitter and going, okay, who is going to rise up and say, I don't care about freedom of speech here. This is vitriol. This is hatred. And, you know, it's great in theory, you know, let's let every voice, well, if the voices are reasonable, you know, that's just, that's just pure racism. That That's just, that's just pure vitriol. That's just mm-hmm. pure hatred mm-hmm. to, to what's going on right now. So who is, I mean, you know, so we're around this tiny table, right, in a mm-hmm. tiny little voice in a tiny little town, but the voices that are out there that are being heard, those are the ones that need to speak up at this time. Right. I think we sometimes underestimate the power of what uh, former Senator John McCain did when he was running for president. It was a small moment, but a very impactful moment. One of his uh, supporters stood up, took a mic, and criticized former President Obama about something that was not true. And Senator McCain took the mic back and said, that is incorrect. And I don't support it. Nice. Right? 
that was a type of leadership that we somehow, and he didn't make a big deal of it. He didn't go on, but that is a style of leadership that we've reached this tipping point that has disappeared off the scene. As long as you're on my team, binary, do whatever you want, right? They'll say, oh, I'm not saying that. Your silence said it. Yeah. You're making light of the situation said it. We also have recently had in the last couple of years uh, a governor of a state. There was a conspiracy to kidnap her, put her on trial and kill her. And people are not saying, wait, I mean, they're not there's the silence around it is very interesting because that the, the attacks on public figures is through the roof. The attacks on poll workers is through the roof and we're silent because it supports our agenda. Well, that says that says a lot about your own personal character. That is not the vein that former Senator McCain was working in of, look, I want you to vote for me. I'm glad you're supporting my ideas, but that idea is wrong. Where do we return to that? And that's when you were talking about, Brian, about the maturity. Um, and, And what have we decided as a society is right? You know, it's interesting to me that you hear the church talking about, um, how bad it is out there, you know, uh, Oh, the world is really declining. It's really getting bad out there. Uh, but at the same time, the church is the one who has claimed that ground of yes. helping the United States or helping their country be mature and be godly and behave well and and to love, you know, love your neighbor. Well, what happened? Great point. You, did, you didn't do your job? What You know, you yeah. can't complain about what's happening outside the walls of the church without taking some responsibility for it and, you know, wanting to be the great cultural influence that you are, um, well, what happened? It didn't work. You know, look at where we are now. So, you know, I think there's space there for the church to do some repenting and um, take a little bit of a hard look at themselves, you know, stop complaining about all those horrible non-believers out there um, and look inside. Or stopping looking at the sin, personal sin, mm-hmm. and and moving into even societal, which the church primarily stands on abortion, right? How about moving beyond that to to what our own rhetoric creates in, again, that binary thinking of we're right, you're wrong, and therefore you are evil, Satan, the enemy. All of that language perpetuates this this tribal, kind of tribal, you know, uh, war. Mm-hmm. And since it's binary, there's really no, a lot of times, there's no good way out of a situation where you're going to be judged by your religious leaders. You know, you think about uh, instances of rape or incest when you're talking about abortion, it immediately kind of goes there. Well, what does the church do with people who are in that position where uh, pregnancy just is almost worse than than how it was, how it happened, you know, in the case of violence? Um, too often we shame them and 
push them off to the side. We don't want to deal with it as don't the help. church. Don't we don't help? You know what? Where's where are we with um, trying to correct the actual problem instead of yelling about this band aid solution that we don't like? We don't like abortion because it's murder. Yeah, okay, but there are other problems that orbit around that that we need to address as well. It's not just that one issue. You know, I love a lot of points that you guys are bringing up right now. And so I'm going back into my construction of how God created the the earth and then apply it to this situation, right? Which make God makes everything from the beginning perfect. And then we try, we mess it up and give limited solutions. Right. So the same thing about the church complaining about the culture that is outside the four walls and then not doing anything to prevent or to make it perfect is a problem, especially if you want to take credit for any of the good that is happening in society. So if you take abortion and things like that, so, okay, how do you prevent unwanted pregnancies? How do you take the topic completely off the table? You want to talk about violence and anger between people? How do you take, uh, enter society into our thoughts, our minds, and our mouth that eliminates the situation? God wasn't out here judging and dealing with all of these conflicts. They never happened in his world, in God's world. We, we've taken the wrong approach in my, in my estimation of how do we even look at the problems that we face? We want a, a, a one-sided solution that benefits whoever we are, knowing that there are people who will suffer because of it and saying that's okay, that's acceptable, versus in a God-created solution, no one would. No one would be offended. No one would be accosted in their own home. No one would be suffering all of these things. Where's that solution from church is what's coming to my head. Yeah, I go to, you know, I go to back to love, right? Which is, you know, that's where I land all the time. But I go back to love and what that looks like. And how do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourself, our neighbor including those that we might deem opposite of us or enemies. What does that look like and how do we do that? And how do we do that in such a binary culture? And how do we do that when when we're opposed? And I think going back to the church, I think if the church is about rules and regulations and intellectual prowess, we're never going to get there. But if the church is about relationship and knowing that we are loved and knowing that our identity and knowing that we belong, let's put it there, and knowing that we are accepted, it's from that place of strength of belonging and acceptance that then I can open my heart to the other, even as we think differently and and find that solution. But if I don't have that mentality, if everything that I am is dependent upon me being right, I've lost already. We've lost already, which is how you can bring a hammer into somebody's home, which is how you can use the N-word, because it's about you. It's what you're, it, it's about you. It's about 
you winning. It's about your mentality. It's about it's about you. It's about your comfort. So you can't even see the other person and their perspective because because a person's intent is on winning or on 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 almost all on gaining their own identity through being right. Yeah, we want we want our society to heal. We want the uh, binary system to go away. We want to be more open. We want to love fearlessly. You know, we want all these things for our our culture, our society here in the United States and other other places too. Um, but we have to remember too that um, history marches on. Uh, we don't know what's what effect this period of history will have on the future. Um, we know, we do know, if we look to the past, we look to the New Testament, even the Gospels, um, Jesus was a strong voice against this oppressive system down to even the um, customs they had for families. Um, And he spoke and acted very strongly against the establishment, you know, all the conflicts he had with... uh, the uh, officials of the day who were speaking these things and reinforcing some of the boundaries between these people and those people. He was trying to tear those down. Um, And he was crucified. Exactly. Look what happened to him. Is the church ready to count that cost? Are we ready as Cornerstone? Are we ready to count that cost of a possible crucifixion in our lives? Right. Short answer, no. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, so to your your point, it, it was all about um, lifting everybody up, right? That there were that all of God's creation was equally important and valuable, and so this knee jerk reaction to be against someone is totally antithetical to Christianity or or to Jesus's ministry. Right, so if you are automatically against someone that just because of what they represent, then you're probably against how Jesus walked upon you're, the earth. Yeah, you're outside of the what message he, he was what yeah. he modeled. Yeah, and so it, it brings back to my mind when Jesus says, "If I be lifted up, I'll draw all unto me." Right, and we think about that in terms of Calvary. What if we roll that forward into today? Why do we have all of these divisions? It can't be because of Jesus and how Jesus walked through the world. And if that is the example that we are to be lifting up, does that become our third way? Not the rules of what the disciples wrote afterward, but the model of the Messiah and how the Messiah walked the earth is this a different because everything else becomes reasons for why i am different from you there is no model about that within jesus of being me different from you lesser greater um why i should hate you why you should hate me why i should suffer because of who i am is that in jesus's model i don't think so I'm thinking out loud, out loud, and on the run. But 
when we come into these diversions and, and degradations of one another, I find it very interesting that few people then reference Jesus. They'll reference everything but. But isn't Jesus what should be lifted up? Well, I think even when they do, it's a Jesus that's sort of made in their own image. you know. Uh, but yeah, he really, as a focal point, he gets ignored because you can't find it there. I totally agree with that. That's a good point. So so what is our uh, understanding as a church of going there to love fearlessly like Jesus did? Sometimes it might be confronting systems, confronting power, speaking against uh, or for. Um, and the initial, one of the... the uh, Unexpected cons- or maybe expected consequences of that is possibly a deepening of rifts, um, divisions of more tribal response to that because people are afraid to have their power or their influence taken away. They don't want to. Lo- it's too scary to love fearlessly. <laughs> That's why we call it loving fearlessly because there's some fear to overcome. There here. is so. Yeah, what, what's our role as the church in doing that? I think we're making steps toward it, um, I, and I think it's the right direction to go. Uh, where it goes, I don't know. I think of, um, I think the last time, maybe not the last time, that we saw this kind of nonviolence. I, I, I think of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, but I also go to Mandela, right, because he also suffered at the hand, like when you like when you said, "Are we willing to be crucified?" I mean, I look at past figures, Gandhi, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. They were willing. They were willing to do what it took. And and this week, um, Richard Rohr has been talking about nonviolence and what that looks like. And he said he summarizes the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s principles of nonviolence. And he said, nonviolence is a way of strength and not a way for cowards. You know, it's not a lack of power that allows us to be nonviolent, but in fact, it's the discovery of a different kind of power. And then he said, the goal of nonviolence is always winning the friendship and the understanding of the supposed opponent, not their humiliation or personal defeat. And then... um, He says the opponent must be seen not so much as an evil person, but as a symbol of a much greater systemic evil of which they're also a victim. So, you know, and then finally, there's a moral power in voluntarily suffering for others. We call it the myth of redemptive suffering, whereas almost all of history is based on the opposite, the myth of redemptive violence. But that's a lie that almost everyone believes, that suffering can be stopped by increasing the opponent's suffering. So when, you know, it, it's, I, I'm looking at, at this this week, how appropriate it was. And then he's, finally, love ethic must be at the center of our whole life or it cannot be effective or real in the crucial moments of conflict. So if we don't own this and live this, it can't be real. It, 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 it is not going to come out when we are hit with conflict. I think it's a very difficult journey of living. I think it's very hard because we have been taught to to self-preserve and because we have been taught that the ego rules and we've been taught that independence, individualism that you're talking about. 
And we don't, and, and, you know, we talked about this a couple of podcasts ago, we don't think in terms of community. We don't think in terms of the health of the community at, at large. Yeah. You know, I just want to provide this additional context to that statement about uh, redemptive suffering. It is an extremely touchy topic uh, within the community of oppressed groups. Right? It's like, look, everything that I've already gained has been through suffering. I'm done suffering. Let's let the majority group suffer a little while. Right. I haven't seen many examples of long term suffering for anything. Is it inflicting violence on others? And I'm wondering how to integrate that because I can imagine almost a visceral response to any oppressed group of going, yeah, like you, Richard Ward, but you can miss me with the suffering side. Because that's the reality, right? Mm. Uh, he's, he's speaking from his context. And, and this was going back to a, a few podcasts ago, we talked about different voices have different questions with looks yes. for different answers. And those different questions didn't start until the 1940s, 50s, 60s about brown and black bodies. So the concept of suffering for the whole is very touchy. So what do you think about what Martin Luther King Jr. did? Where, right. where do you stand on that and with, that's the with reason, what you're saying? Yeah, and that's the reason prior to his death, his popularity was really, really low. Okay, which is true. Right. Um, it's, you know, after death that he became very popular uh, in many ways. Uh, so... It started out well in terms of nonviolent uh, direct action. Um, but after you go through years and years of being spit on, uh, your church is blown up, uh, with no end seeming in sight, you start to question that of like, what is this about? Am I up against something that is so violent? It will exhaust us all prior to having its desired end. That is the fear, not necessarily the reality, but that is the fear. And so I think about that in the more universal context, meaning all cultures, all backgrounds. Uh, is this a phase that we have to go through to finally put the nail in the coffin that selfishness works? Right. Right. There, I, if I say it certainly that, gets you ahead, doesn't it? Right. Yeah. But does it destroy the community to such an extent yes. it can never recover? Is this a phase we have to allow it to, to go? We have to allow that lie to die and we can't save it. That's again, the way we think, the way we, dis, we talk on this podcast, we, we it isn't a, we have the answers. Like we explore different ways. We would love for it to stop today. We would love the church to be able to go out into the culture today and stop some of the violence and vitriol that we see. How could we do that when Jesus couldn't? Is it an experience that society has to take upon itself and look at the rubble around itself mm. and say it has to be something else? Because this, under no circumstances, will work. 
It's a very powerful thought because, you know, you're looking at the oppression of Rome and you're looking at Jesus coming and dying, right, for all of us. And if you look at what has happened since that time, right, two world wars, you know, Vietnam, the Armenian, the Rwandan, all of those genocide, right, um, you know, the the just you know, um, Auschwitz and, and mm-hmm. the annihilation of the Jewish people. You look at it, in some ways it's gotten what seemingly worse mm-hmm. or at least the same, mm-hmm. right? So it kind of brings up, you know, it's not really the happy-go-lucky podcast, but it really brings up, you know, what are we doing? Mm-hmm. Are we carrying out, you know, are we carrying out that, that love rhetoric, are we carrying out what the body really was supposed to look like? I mean, yeah. Jesus came and paid for it with his with his very life. Yeah. And it also, you know, James, I'm I'm skipping to another subject that because my brain is going, when you talk about, you know, the the nonviolence of the oppressed group. And I can't help but think about what a I'm gonna I'm this gonna be sloppy, but what better way for the group in power to keep the oppressed group out of power is by buying into the nonviolent? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think that's what I hear you saying. Mm-hmm. It's how much of this is going to be on the back of those that are oppressed. Already. At, already. So now you're asking me to go into a nonviolent stance. As And I'm not saying you're going to go out and create something, but in in – in protecting myself from the oppression of the majority. Mm-hmm. It's just, it just, it's a really good point. It just, it, it we, stirs within me yeah, what you're saying. Yeah. So in these podcasts, we talk about tipping points from time to time. Uh, things come to a certain state where it is so out of balance that the whole society tips over to a new way of thinking and a new way of experience. And that has been avoided in Western society at the expense of a part of its society. And most of that has been black and brown bodies, right? So the weight of the problems with the decisions that we make as a, as a group has been disproportionately suffered by, by the black some. And bodies. Yeah. And so people think the idea works and it never worked. But since I didn't personally experience the problems with it, I'm thinking maybe it is working. Mm. Maybe it is. Well, for me, it's working. I, this is how we define success. And I have that. We won. Why would I change? And you say, well, don't you see the road we're on? Yeah, but I don't think it's as bad as you say. Mm. Yeah, I know this guy's house got broken into because he was thinking a different way. But it's never happened to me. Right. It, that was isolated. Yeah, that, that was a person who had mental health problems. Yeah, that, that, all these excuses. Instead of as a society, I think the, the, the church does have this role of prophetic proclamation. Mm. And are we doing that right now? Of saying that, yes, you have certain liberties, but we hope with those liberties, you have a certain amount of maturity of saying, I have the power to say all kinds of negative things, 
but my greater power is my own restraint of myself. That is my great power. It is not that, oh, I can say all these kind of offensive things. Aren't I great? No, you're a fool. Right. Why would you do that if it wasn't for the destruction of the society that you hope survives? Take that power and act better. Right. If you claim to be powerful, use it to act better yourself. Right. That's where I go with these things. And what is the role of the church now? Of being very vocal, very almost in the face, not of those that are already powerless, but for those that are powerful. That let them know what they are using as shorthand for power. Mm. You have true power. That what what is the threat in Western society, especially in capitalistic uh, societies? Money. I will starve you. But what if they couldn't take that away from you? Now they have to deal with your thoughts. Now they have to deal with your position and your in in your your prodding and your probing, because they've lost the power to control your ability to eat. That is what I would hope as we go forward and, and, and attack this binary thinking and what's going on in our culture. Uh, uh, the church is, is willing to die to its popularity. Hmm. Hmm. Die yeah, I, to I its think, popularity. You know, one of the things we're experiencing is a loss of faith in our institutions as a country. One major institution is the church. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a wide swath of the church that doesn't agree with that. They think that things are still yeah, status going great. quo. We still, yeah, it's going fine. It's going how we want it. You know, we're doing okay as a church. I mean, our numbers are declining, but we'll figure it out. You know, I, I can't help but think that um, the decline and maybe demise of the traditional church in the United States needs to happen. I think it's actually a good thing. It's probably a... You know, it needs a resurrection of some kind. That doesn't reformation. Look, a reformation doesn't that doesn't look like it has because obviously what it has been hasn't done much for our culture. We wouldn't be here talking about binary thinking and tribalism and violence and othering and all those things. We wouldn't be talking about that had the church been doing maybe what we would say doing what it's supposed to do mm-hmm. over the last two hundred and fifty years. So. Yeah. Well, we have to bring this incredible conversation to a close again. Thank you. Thank you for these poignant thoughts. And uh, again, thank you for tuning in and taking a listen with us and staying around the table with us. And um, I'm just thinking of the conversation we had today. And if people are um, not liking it or you have questions, you can always email us. You can always talk to us. We're on cornerstonewestchester.com. And our email is adminccf at gmail.com. And you are more than welcome to write in and ask questions. And I'm laughing because I'm thinking if people didn't like the conversation, they're like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna stay at this table anymore. <laughs> That's what you heard in my voice. <laughs> so um, but we hope you stay listening yeah. to us and share our podcast with others. So have a great day. Thanks. Bye-bye. Staying at the Table is hosted by Dr. Tracy Saletta, Matthew Kistler, and James Beatty, and produced by Hear It Sound and Studio. 
Got a question or a comment or a topic you want discussed? Email us at adminccf at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with new episodes coming out. And if you're feeling kind, leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. Find out more about staying at the table at cornerstonewestchester.com. Thank you.